RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. Welcome to another episode of RNMD. I'm your nurse host, Abby, and we finally did it. We finally did it. I was able to get six really amazing people to come on and all at the same time, which is really challenging when you're scheduling people uh, who work in healthcare, but we did it and we recorded the NPMD episode. Thank you to Erica, who is a family uh, med intern living in the Midwest. Uh, Tara, a third year peds resident living in the Pacific Northwest. Matt, who's a critical care attending in Cleveland. Leah, who's an FNP based um, in Pennsylvania and she does school based health. Sean, who is a critical care NP. And Liz, who is an FNP. She does primary care and she's living in the Boston area. Uh, and then little old me. Um, <laughs> it's like all these MDs and all these NPs. And then I'm just like, hey guys, <laughs> I'm an NP student. <laughs> like, anyway, um, we had the best talk, and they are so smart and brilliant. So I'm gonna just keep this short today and let you guys uh, listen to them. Also, there are no ads in this episode. There's not gonna be any ads in the next one, and I'll spare you the explanation why. But going forward, we might not do ads. We'll we'll see what happens. But I don't I don't think that I'm loving the way it sounds in the episode. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But anyway, without further ado, NP versus MD. Here we go. First of all, thank you guys so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. I know this was like crazy to try to coordinate everybody's schedule. So I'm just so grateful that you guys made time, especially during COVID. So thank you so much. Okay, so quickly, I just want to give like a little bit of history about why this topic is so important and why we're covering it and why this this topic specifically, I wanted to do a big panel and not just one person. So why don't we go around and you guys introduce yourselves, your name, your title, and, you know, as comfortable as you feel sharing where you live and work. I can go first. I'm... Erica, I'm a family med intern in Metro Detroit. So just graduated. Really good time to do that. <laughs> happy, I guess. Excited to finally be working. Well, congrats. Thank you. Liz, why don't you go ahead? So I'm Liz. I'm a family nurse practitioner. I live in Boston. I work in a federally qualified health center in primary care. I also run the company Real World NP, which is an educational platform for new nurse practitioners, kind of easing the transition to primary care through like online educational content. Awesome. Tara, you want to go? 
Yeah, my name is Tara. I'm a third year pediatrics resident at a large children's hospital in the Pacific Northwest. And I'm currently applying to a nephrology fellowship. Awesome. Uh, Leah? Sure. I'm Leah. I'm a family nurse practitioner. I work in school-based health, and I'm also a certified school nurse administrator now with my company. Matt? My name is Matt Shuba. I'm a critical care physician at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Awesome. And last but not least, the man himself. I don't know about that. The, the, late, the late one. Yeah. Um, my name is Sean Dent. I'm an acute care nurse practitioner. I work in critical care as well. I've been a critical care nurse for 15 years. As Abby, Abby gave me the name OG somehow. <laughs> I've been at this social media thing for as long as I've been a nurse. So about 15 years. So the old guy. The best. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So one of the reasons why I wanted to discuss this is because anytime we're talking about RNMD interactions, somebody always brings up NPs and PAs. And PAs is a whole nother topic, so I'm not going to combine them onto this one. So we're just specifically going to talk about NPs on this episode. It's a huge topic. It's a huge area of hostility from some people. A lot of people have a lot of feelings about this topic. So I, I felt like it was important because no one profession is a monolith, right? So my opinion is different than your opinion is different than her opinion. So I, I wanted to bring all of you on so we could really kind of flush this out because I think even within NPs, there are differing views of independent practice, et cetera. So I don't want to bore you, but I'm just going to give a brief history of NPs and just like what we're talking about and why they exist in the first place. So like in the late 1950s, early 1960s, medicine expanded beyond just primary care and the doctors started focusing on specializing more. So then there was a shortage of primary care physicians and especially in rural areas. So the doctors that stayed in those areas recruited a lot of advanced nurses. At that time, there was no advanced practice nurse, but they would recruit nurses that had a lot of experience to do patient teaching and help them run you know, their clinic. In 1965, the first nurse practitioner program was developed at the University of Colorado. And the funny thing about it, the most interesting thing that I noticed was it was started by a doctor and a nurse team. <laughs> so Loretta Ford, she was a nurse. She partnered with Dr. Henry Silver. They joined together and they, they started making this program. So that's where it was founded. It's doctors and nurses working together, which I think is missed in, in the discussion that we're having about it you know, currently. By 1979, there was 15,000 NPs. And now, I mean, there's over 200,000. NPs didn't have a legitimate claim to Medicare Medicaid, so they couldn't bill. They had to get their payment directly from the hospital or directly from the doctor. So they had to fight and lobby to be able to bill directly and create like legitimacy of themselves. So they're used to doing that, I guess, is the point that I want to make, which is going to lead us into the lobbying topic later. The same thing, once they got 
some of their practice privileges. The same thing that happened in the 50s and 60s, it happened again when Obamacare happened. It opened it up to primary care again to underserved families. So there was a need again. And that combined with the physician shortage is kind of where we're seeing what we have now. So that's my spiel. Okay. So I want to ask you guys kind of point blank NPs. Do you want independence? (laughs) I'll go out there. I'll say that I believe that independence is something that you want once you have it. And in states where it's there, there's no fight for it anymore. And that's really what I believe, that once it's gone ahead and out there, it kind of loses all fight. And there's not any, you know, I mean, it's just the way it is. I'm in a, not in a full practice state. Pennsylvania's not. Um, there was recent legislation about getting us full practice and it kind of went down the tubes. So I don't foresee it happening here for at least another six years. But for mm-hmm. now, it doesn't really affect my practice. Okay. Sean? The, the short answer is that uh, I'm very outspoken about it. So I'm very biased as well, working as an acute care nurse practitioner in a critical care setting, in an ICU, in a high acuity setting. My opinion is very biased. So that's my preface. And the answer is, I think independent practice is useful, but I don't think it's useful in my specialty. Maybe in small rural areas, but in the larger facilities, in the, in the teaching facilities, yeah, I don't, I don't think it has any 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 value. I think it actually can cause problems. Where I have a problem with independent practice is what are the what are the prereq qualifications for for a nurse practitioner to actually practice independently? And we can get into that later. But mm-hmm. my short answer is, I'm down the middle of the road with some caveats. Okay, Liz, do you want independent practice as an NP? I feel like this question is so complicated and nuanced and I like me are you asking like me personally or like Mm -hmm. so me personally I as a primary care provider as a primary care like PCP with my own panel it would be really nice if I didn't have to have my visiting nurse paperwork and my diabetic shoe paperwork co-signed and like that's the biggest barrier for me that like I do basically anything that I want to do except like those two particular things and so that would be nice, but I'm very happy in my role in this community health center that is very friendly to nurse practitioners and allows us our full scope of practice. So for me, that's enough. It would be nice to have some logistical things taken care of, but I, I'm ambivalent as it relates to the entire global question of independent practice. Okay. Could you guys, the NPs real quick, could you guys just tell me a little bit about your background education? Like what were the requirements to become an NP? So for me, for where I went, it was two years of, you needed to have your BSN, you needed to have two years of practice under your belt. It was a two to three year program, depending on how you did it. You did need 600 hours of clinical and they encouraged more. Okay. Sean? Mine was a master's program, so I don't know if we, we've, we'll probably get into that nuance, but mine was master's, not doctorate. So as a master's program, it was a standard two years, depending on if you went full-time, part-time. Prereqs at the time, and this was a while ago, I think it was you had to have a, like a year to year and a half of experience, and it was an acute care program, so they preferred critical care or acute care 
experience, and that could have been ICU or ER. It didn't matter as long as it was quote unquote critical care experience, but it wasn't a disqualifier either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for my program. So I was a nurse for five years before <clears throat> before I went back to ma- my master's program. So I also have a master's. I don't have a doctorate. So for me, I remember taking the GRE, but I don't think it was required. And it was a while ago. It was five years ago. So I'm kind of struggling to remember, but I know I had to do personal statements. I think I needed a certain GPA. I don't think that they had any requirements for the certain amount of practice years for, uh, as a nurse, but they did require a bachelor's in nursing mm-hmm. before starting. Okay. Doctors, you want to talk about your background experience requirements? Yeah. So for most people for medical school, you don't technically have to have a science-based undergrad degree. Schools just have a certain set of medical school prerequisites. And it might even be just like a number of like physiology-based or biology-based classes. And so when you apply to medical school, you can look up which courses you have to take, but you can really major in whatever you want, like art history or whatever if you wanted to. I did the very traditional thing. I majored in physiology and neuroscience. And then applied to medical school. I only applied to one, which in hindsight was very ballsy. But it it worked out. So I knew I wanted to go there. So I got in and then I went straight through. Some people also will take gap years kind of traditionally, but I just did my four years of undergrad and then four years of med school. Similar to Erica and Matt, I had to do all my pre-med requisites as an undergrad. I also majored in a very stereotypical, like my college's equivalent of public health. I also chose to do a master's, but definitely not a requirement to go to med school. And then I also just went straight through the four years of med school. I'm now in my third year of residency. I'm choosing to subspecialize. So I will do another three years of training after this before I can independently practice in my chosen subspecialty field. And that's where I'm at. Similar to Erica and Tara, four years of med school, I did a four-year residency program because it was combined internal medicine and pediatrics. And then I did an adult critical care fellowship, which was two years, and now I'm in my second year of independent practice. Great. Okay. So I guess on the top of of education while we're here, I just want to mention, so the NP programs that are accredited, right? There are a couple of ways that they can get accredited. I, I looked up the standards for accreditation. So there's a agency, and I'll spare you all the acronyms. We should talk about acronyms later because some of these people, oh my God, there was a lady. That's like a nursing was, thing, I feel. It's a nursing like thing. All the it's, it's annoying. Yeah. <laughs> we're, like, this, we're lazy. It's we're lazy. <laughs> we, don't have, we don't like saying big words. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This lady had 27 letters at the end of her name. I counted them. 27. <laughs> I'm all set. I'm all set. I just truncate mine because I'm like, I'm all, I'm good. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, this agency that does that, it requires proof of the students. It it requires proof of their outcomes. It requires proof of the curriculum, the, the educational settings, the resources provided, and they undergo on-site evaluations and it has to be renewed every five years. I think that's important to point out before we go forward. Okay. So state guidelines. Let's talk about state guidelines, guys. Why is it all over the place? What's going on? Where? (laughs) I'm confused. 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like really tough because I was looking at this as well. And it's like, depends on the state, whether or not you have full practice authority versus restricted, what that means, what your education requirements are, your continuing education requirements rather, and then whether you report to the board of nursing or board of medicine. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of politics involved. So I, I feel like that's one of the things that I've thought about is that like, why don't we have like one unified thing instead of state by state? But I don't know. There's a lot of feelings, I think. So it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of mirrors nursing licenses, if you think of it that way, is that every state in, has different ways that nurses can obtain license. You have some states that have what are called compact states. So you can, you can get a compact license and you can be licensed in more than one state, but you only apply once. So you, as a travel nurse, that's beautiful. So you could be licensed in up to, I think, eight different states and you only submit one application. And that's how convoluted nurse practitioner practice per state is, is because every nurse practitioner is viewed differently. For instance, in my state in Pennsylvania, we've actually jumped ship into a different department because we used to be in the department of medicine or vice versa. We were in department of nursing. Now we're in department of medicine. And it has a lot to do with the origins of the nurse practitioner role because there are some state legislation that still calls us extenders. Um, They've used (laughs) mid-levels. They've used physician extenders. So it has a lot to do with First of all, when did the first nurse practitioner show up in the state? And second of all, as stated now, you know, it depends on what kind of practice acts you have. Are you independent? Are you partial? Do you have collaborative agreements? Though, yes, it is. It has absolutely nothing to do with role and function. It has everything to do with politics. Mm-hmm. Doctors, what do you think about all of this, like the state guidelines and the rush to independence and all of this stuff? Is it is it confusing to you? I mean, what do you think? I have learned so much in like the last five minutes that I didn't know was <laughs> even a thing. So yeah, I'd say it's pretty confusing to me. And I think similar to what Sean was saying earlier, my experience is so, you know, residency is so inpatient focused. We do get some outpatient time, but really the majority of our time is spent on the inpatient side. And so I think my view of things is very biased towards the inpatient side because that's where I interact with nurse practitioners. And that's where, you know, I've, I've never interacted with a nurse practitioner in my outpatient clinic ever. Um, so I think in that way, I'm, I'm learning a lot that I didn't know was an issue even. Um, and my view is very biased and skewed towards the inpatient side. So I think that also kind of makes things confusing for me. Mm-hmm. I love your attitude. Thank you so much. <laughs> Are you looking up at her? <laughs> well, I, I kind of I... rolled my I rolled oh. my eyes because it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to hear because mm-hmm. I've been doing this a long time and just the approach. So I I'm saying from most nurse practitioners, we appreciate that approach that you're open minded, that you haven't settled into an idea yet because just because of an experience. So you you're still in training. You haven't been practicing yet you don't know enough about nurse practitioners. So you're at least open enough to maybe have your opinion changed. So oh, yeah, sorry. absolutely. I don't even think I know enough to saying, really have an you. opinion. So, <laughs> oh, sorry. Cause, Cause it's just the opposite in a lot of places. So I've worked 
my experience is broad, even though it's inpatient. I've worked in every kind of hospital that you name it. I've worked in travel. I've done permanent. I've worked in the hospitals that have four ICUs. I've worked in hospitals that have 22 ICUs. I've worked in hospitals where the ICU is ran by a family practice doc who doesn't actually visit the hospital to having and attending and having 10 deep residents and fellows. So it's, it's just very, I'm very appreciative of that because we could have a long conversation about new generation versus old generation. So we will. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, do you work with a lot of nurse practitioners? Yeah, we have in our, so I, I mean, I work in a large health system. We have about 40 advanced practice providers in our group, um, and it's fairly balanced between nurse practitioners and physician assistants. So, you know, my, my experience is, is pretty rich, and, and I spend a lot of time, and one of the hospitals I work in is just me and an, and an APP, and we're like together at night, just the two of us. Whereas if I'm at the main hospital, it's a combination of residence fellows and, and APPs as well. So, yeah, so I've had a lot of experience. The nuances, to get to your other question that you asked, the nuances of all the different types of nurse practitioners and and the different licensing and all that, the licensing is definitely foreign to me. The different types of nurse practitioner schools and what kind of options that provides you, I've learned a lot about over the last three or four years. I think I've written about 60 or 70 letters of recommendation for for our nurses who have gone on to train. So I've, I've learned a lot about that in the meanwhile, and it's fantastic to work with nurse practitioners. Uh, it's it's one of my one of the favorite parts of my job. I love teaching. I love teaching residents, fellows, and APPs. The neat thing about working about eight with APPs is that you are working with somebody who, you know, I love working with residents, but they're often, they often just rotate through. So some of them are interested, some of them may not, may not be. I'm working with a nurse practitioner. I'm working with somebody, this is their full-time job. They may, especially with people like Sean, they probably only mainly work in one or two different ICUs and they know that unit inside and out. And they may know it better than some of the docs that they work alongside if there's somebody that kind of only comes through a couple of weeks a, a year or something like that. So I, I really value the experience. And I'll tell you that I, I came a long way on this because when I was a, a med student, I think just out of insecurity, I think I felt a little bit threatened by, by the presence of, of advanced practice providers. But as soon as I got into residency, even it became very clear to me the, the value. And I think it's, it's one of those things where the, the, the team aspect becomes very clear. Everyone has, can, can apply different skills and different roles, but I think we work better when we're together. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. And we'll talk about that when we talk about the social media aspect, because for the most part, when I was trying to research these kind of like loud doctors who are really, you know, brash about like how they hate, you know, all these mid-level providers and all this stuff, I felt like it was more coming out of a place of like, they have no control over what they're doing. And then they have this person who might know that unit way better than them. And, you know, it's like a, it's an uncomfortable feeling for them because I, I didn't see a lot of, a lot of attendings out, out there saying the same things, you know, so it, it's different. It's, it's funny. The perspective changes. Yeah. I think we learn better over time. I mean, it's one of those things where you just, you get to understand the systems uh, that we work in and that there's not, I, I mean, I think especially like in the inpatient setting, I mean, collaboration ought to be the rule. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no reason for there to be any sort of adversarial relationships. So. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot, though. What do you think about independence? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I'm i going to plead ignorance on the outpatient side of things. So I think well, what I will say about that is I think 
you could make a good argument for independence in the primary care setting because functionally it's it's happening anyway, whether you want to call it that or not. And like, you know, to, to Liz's point, it's kind of ridiculous that you, she needs to have somebody sign off for like diabetic shoes. Like that's just asinine. Whether that's related to independent practice or not is a different story. On the inpatient setting, particularly in the setting I work in, I, I tend to agree with Sean. I mean, I, I think the level of complexity is high enough that you need to be able to collaborate, ask for help and, and things like that. And, you know, in reality, we all do. Physicians need to be able to do that too. The issue that I see on the inpatient side is if you're the primary, let's say you're independent, whether you're ICU or on the hospital to service, you're a primary nurse practitioner by yourself and you need to ask and, and you need guidance on something that is a general issue. So like, then who do you go to? I think that becomes really challenging. You may be great and, and you may have a ton of experience, but the things that are asked of us along the way to get to the, the point that we are in as physicians it hopefully takes us to the level where we can be helpful in that way. And this is comes a time where I have to sort of make a disclaimer that, I mean, every practitioner is different, whether it's a physician or NP, and everyone's on a bell curve in terms of their experience and their abilities. So there are some nurse practitioners who I would, you know, I would trust them over certain physicians and the same who work in the same specialty. And it all depends on kind of where you are in the bell curve. What's your desires to continue to learn and grow and, and, you know, what kind of work have you done? I think those mm-hmm. things are really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Erica, do you feel that? Like we were just talking about when you're new, you're you're at a new hospital, you're at a new role, you're a new doctor. Do you do you feel do you have feelings about NPs when you work with them? <laughs> so just the way that my rotations have worked out, we have a very inpatient heavy intern year. It is family med, so I'll work my way out into the outpatient world. But I've mostly interacted with PAs so far. I mean, but it really wouldn't matter. I'm asking pretty much everyone that I see for help with something at some point because I just feel like I have no practical knowledge at all. And so there's like every month you're just hit with a new set of things that you're supposed to be looking out for, new orders that you're supposed to be ordering because the patient population changes in one way or another. So I'm pretty much just whoever is around. I'm leaning on them pretty heavily as an intern. So I think that's just part of the way that the inpatient world works. Like Matt and Sean were saying, you just have to operate as a team and be willing to ask people for help and hopefully they're nice and help you. But I think my hospital's pretty good. I chose it because it was such a supportive environment. It's a teaching hospital with multiple different residencies. So I think everyone in general is pretty inclined to teaching one another and asking for help. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I see over and over again is people comparing NPs to residents, people comparing, you know, well, I'm a doctor and I went to medical school and I have all of this background knowledge and I'm getting paid less, for example, and I'm working more hours in a lot of times. And what do you guys think about comparing those those two? And that this excludes attendings. It's just residents. What do you think about that? It's like apples and oranges, right? Like (laughs) where it's government funding for residencies. Our salaries are so low because hospitals can get away with paying us so little. Our work hour requirements and all the protections that are put in place, it's all ACG&E mandated. 
And so people are going to pay you as little as they can get away with. I don't think you can, I wouldn't imagine you could get away with doing that to an NP because they would just go somewhere else and you don't have to work at a teaching hospital. Hey, Abby, I want to ask, what do you, what do you, could you, could you clarify what you mean by comparing NPs to residents? Because I have like two or three scenarios in my head. So I just want to, I want you to clarify what you mean. I mean, when I research this topic and I'm looking for people who are disgruntled, you know, those are the people I'm really looking for. The people who are mad enough to take it to the internet and write things down anonymously, right? Those people are generally, and I get this from like the residency Reddit thread, basically. Those residents are generally saying that they have more education, they are getting paid significantly less they have more requirements and their lifestyle is worse basically but my question has always been well why are we comparing them to the np though because it is different right you're in a residency program you're in a teaching program the the np works there that was my my only thing from that i would have to say i 100% agree with everything erica said and that it's we're in training we're funded by a federal program. So where the money is coming from is totally different. I think the challenge that I've heard my co-residents speak to is depending on where in the hospital we are, the role that the nurse practitioner is playing can sometimes change. So for example, in the emergency room, nurse practitioners take on a role very similar to residents in that they pick up patients, they have to staff the patient with the attending and then we do the things and we discharge the patient. And so that role is the same regardless of if you're an intern or a senior resident or if you're a nurse practitioner versus in the floor, on the floor at my hospital, MPs on the wards teams take on an intern role. So they pick up patients in our primary contact for patients and are supervised by a senior resident. Depending on what the team is, there is also a fellow on the team and then an attending. So that role is obviously very different than, than what's happening in the emergency room. And that's specific to our APP fellowship at our hospital. So these are nurse practitioners who've completed nurse practitioner school and are choosing to do a fellowship in pediatrics specifically. And so as that fellowship training, they're taking on an intern role. And then versus in other areas of our hospital. So for example, in the ICU, specifically in our neonatal ICU, so NNPs, and then in our hematology oncology unit, the MPs take on more of a fellow role. So we are directly supervised by nurse practitioners. And I think there's a lot of feelings about that that are separate. But I think where I've heard co-residents have gripes about pay, for example, or about things in general, would be we're asked to prioritize, for example, signing out nurse practitioners early. And I think that can be very frustrating for people when we often violate our work hours. So we're not supposed to work more than 80 hours a week, but if it's happening, it's happening. There's not really much we can do about it. So like, for example, the last two weeks, I think I've averaged about 80, maybe a little over 80. And if you average my salary, that's like about $15 an hour that I've been getting paid. And I think some of my co-residents have in the past felt that it feels very unfair to then be asked to sign out someone early who is making hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever the salary may be. And I don't think it's so much wanting that person to be paid less. I think it's more of this. I think it's misdirected anger. I mm-hmm. think people want to be paid more. And I think that we there's a lot of issues with work hours and there's a lot of issues with how residents are mistreated. And I think that anger gets misdirected. But I think it's 
to me, it's at least understandable that there would be that frustration. And just, I think where it's directed and how it's directed is what needs to be worked on. Yeah, well said. I I completely agree with you. Residents deserve better. Residents deserve more money. They deserve better work hours. I have seen, I'm sure everybody here has seen some shit, right? (laughs) And it's not okay. It needs to stop. And yeah, I think you're right. I, I might be mad too if I have somebody sitting next to me making more money than me and they got more sleep than me and and then I have to sign them out. I, I can understand that feeling. And I think it's time for nursing to get behind doctors as well and say, like, we don't support this either. You know, we don't want this for our doctors either. I think that would really help. It's like, it's so hard. It feels so huge. I think that's one of the things that I struggle with in this conversation because I agree with all of that stuff. And I feel like so much of the anger that I see is because people are struggling and suffering so much, physicians and interns and residents. And like, it's so complicated because again, the government funding, right? Like it's a government fund. It's like a huge system. It's not one thing. You know what I mean? And that's what makes it so challenging, I think. Absolutely. One of the things that the reason why I asked for the clarification is I have a pretty large educational program where I work. We have, uh, it's kind of similar to Matt. My my facility is probably half the size of Matt. So I have equally about 20 APPs that I work with. We started with four. We now have 20. And in order to educate the attendings who are coming in, one of the things that they used to tell these attendings is that treat the new APP like a second year resident, that they know just enough and you need to teach them. And it, and if there's that piece of the puzzle, but I also agree with Tara 100%, 1000% that it has everything to do with displaced anger, miscommunication and misunderstanding because I think if these residents understood what our education level was and what our skill level was versus theirs, they might feel differently. But I'm going to say this unpopular opinion cuz don't I always you signed up for that shit, you know, <laughs> because you're in training. This is my full-time job. I didn't get paid for my training. I paid for it. I didn't earn a salary at all when I was in nursing school. I don't know about anybody else, but nursing, I didn't get a salary. I was working a job on top of going to school, but I didn't earn a salary. And it is, it's apples and oranges. It completely is. And it's unfair for both parties to compare it like that. But it comes down to being, you know, high school antics and schoolyard, a schoolyard fight that why, why are we having this argument in the first place? Mm -hmm. Because I'm here to help you and you're, you're here to help me and we're here to help the patient. So I don't understand where, where this animosity comes in because you have something to teach me and I have something to teach you. Let's go. Right. So. Yeah. Okay. So I actually, that leads us into the next point beautifully. Thank you, Sean. <laughs> so let's talk about, I mean, we're talking about the education and we want doctors to understand the education that an NP goes through, right? But there's the other side of it too, where we're talking about degree mills. That's something that comes up a lot. So let's talk about it. I'm, I'm speaking last on this because I, if anyone knows anything about me, I've, I've spoken way too much about this. Okay. Go ahead. Anybody. <laughs> I mean, so I have to just full disclosure. I feel like 
patient care takes a lot of my mental bandwidth and I find the, the conflict. I admire you so much, Abby, that you can hold so much space for these conversations because they're so intense and they can be so draining. So for me, um, when it comes to the degree mills, I'm not fully informed about it. What I understand is that there are online nurse practitioner programs that the, the talk about it is that they will accept anyone with a pulse and they churn people out and they're just there for profit. Like that's the story that I hear, but I don't have a ton of factual information about it. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of the, the pieces at least that I see come down to like, is, is online education safe versus is there something wrong with those actual programs? And I guess I just wonder what other people's thoughts are about it. And if you would give any like further clarification on what you would classify as a degree mill and what, what differentiates the one from another. So that's a really good question, actually. I, I'm glad that you said that because I think that kind of perfectly explains how most people feel about degree mills. Most people hear that buzzword and it just is kind of said as like a catch-all of you can just take click, click, click online and now you're a nurse practitioner and there's no standards for you at all. And so let's explore what that actually means. So obviously there are legitimate, you know, it sounds like you guys went to places that even required certain a number of years at the bedside before, et cetera. So there are online programs. Full disclosure, I went to a hybrid program for my first nursing school. That's where you do your lectures online, and then you go to the hospital, and you go to a place, and you do your labs, and you go to a place, and you do proctored testing. And for, I think, a lot of nursing programs that are online, like at least just straight nursing, not masters. I think that's similar to how they do it. It's so that low-income students can go to nursing school, really. And for me, it was a great option because I could listen to my lecture on the way to my job, you know, because I had to continue working and stuff. It was the only way I could continue. So, okay, degree mills. So... In general, a lot of these degree mills, and I, I kind of surveyed on on my Instagram, like, what do the nurses think degree mills, like, what are the schools that qualify, right? A lot of people said Grand Canyon University, Chamberlain University, this thing I never heard of before, United States University. <laughs> this thing. It does not look great. I'll be honest with you. So a lot of them have online classes. You do completely online. And some of them do not have proctored exams. Then at some point, if it's like a two and a half to three year program, at some point in the middle, you have to find your own site. You have to do a certain number of hours. It's between like 16 and 20 hours a week. And then you complete while you're also taking online classes and then you have to complete your board exam at the end, and then you you become a nurse practitioner. So the question becomes, especially within COVID, are online classes bad? Does that make it illegitimate? What about students finding their own clinical sites? Is that okay? Is this stuff dangerous? For, for a, I guess, an outsider's perspective on it, I think the piece about educational quality is not exclusive to nurse practitioner programs. And I think 
it's kind of like the old guard way of to get really excited about how online learning is bad. But if you're going to stand in a room and read your PowerPoint to me, it probably doesn't matter, which is the way that most people teach. <laughs> so I think that's, that's the, that's, you know, I think the most important thing to know. And, and an interesting parallel to some of these programs where the nursing, the NP students have to find their own clinical sites. This is also true for some medical school programs, particularly international medical grads and some smaller medical schools, the students sometimes have to find their own rotations. So I don't know if that's good or bad. It seems like it puts, them, puts you at a disadvantage in some ways, but I, I mean, how would you know and how, how could you study that? And then are these things bad or dangerous? I certainly am not qualified to answer that question. But what I will say is there are great schools for NPs and for physicians that produce terrible products, and there are lesser quote-unquote schools that, that produce great products. So it, a lot of it comes down to the individual, and I think that's the, the reality of it. I think a lot about this, and I don't know if I have any great answers about it, but I, so like my business is, is helping nurse practitioners kind of like ease that transition to practice because there's a lot to learn on the job after you graduate. And I definitely like agree with what Matt said of like, I, I, I think it's very difficult. I, I think that there's like, there's not a lot of data, right? And like, I, like with medicine, it's like really great to have that data. But I definitely noticed that difference of some people when they graduate, they have more strong clinical foundations and critical thinking, and then some other clinicians that they don't necessarily have that. And I just, I don't know if that can be distilled down to the degree mills, you know. My education, I've, I, I had really great experiences with clinicals where I had a doctor who I followed for three months at a time, and I was her only student. And I met with her three times a week, and that was awesome. I actually had two MDs, two NPs, and a PA throughout my clinical rotations. And you know, I loved it because every day I would go home, I'd read more, I'd research more, I'd come back with questions, we'd talk. And it was very, very, it was, I feel as though the, the experience was invaluable. I'm not sure everybody else got that. <laughs> yeah, I love school. Oh my God, hearing you talk about it, I'm like, ah! <laughs> I have concerns. Of, I mean, I have concerns because I've precepted students who have had to find their own preceptorship and they're so desperate. They're so stressed. They're so frustrated. And I can only imagine, I had one nurse practitioner student who told me that she called 60 different clinics slash clinicians up and down the East coast between Boston and South Carolina. I don't know why. I think she went to Duke. I think that's why, but it's like when you're at that level of desperation, what is the caliber of what you're going to take? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like hopefully you're going mm-hmm. to be an ethical clinician and choose something that is going to be valuable. But I feel like that one of the things that I keep thinking about with this topic is like when it comes to like regulation versus ethic, like upholding ethics of the profession, there's like a gray line there of like how much is like is regulation because we don't trust the ethics or is like is ethics of the profession enough to uphold it you know what i mean i definitely think that this is a problem where nursing needs to become more involved i think that we let our students down and that we don't uphold our profession by refusing to take students i feel as though medicine definitely has a one up on us in that they educate their students they take them on they see it as their responsibility as a professional responsibility and i think that there's a lot of room in nursing for us to advance our profession through teaching and through precepting 100% i've precepted students from 6 months in basically for for 5 years and before that i was precepting nurses it's like this is what we should do mhm i agree 
Erica. I will say, like, it sounds very nice that like doctors just take an interest in teaching, but they do all get paid to do it too. Whereas <laughs> I know that my NP student friends, I mean, when they're looking for pre because I asked, for, like, I asked my clinic director, I texted a couple people I know, but they won't do it because it's for free. And so for them, they're like, I'm sorry, like, I can't really justify slowing down my practice to take someone on and then not get compensated for it, which I think is fair. I think everyone's, I mean, knowledge is, is worth something. And if you're going to share that with someone, I would hope that the, I think it's on the school to compensate, you know, not the student themselves. Mm -hmm. I think it's unfair if you pay tuition that they make you find your own placements and then also don't pay the people who are educating you. What's the tuition for? Yeah. I appreciate you so much for saying that, Erica, because I I love teaching clearly, right? <laughs> like, I don't mind that it slows me down. I enjoy having students. I feel like it, it, anyway, that's my own personal thing. But I think that's such a good point because I think, I don't know, and we're not talking about PAs, but I, I think my understanding is that they also pay their preceptors. I don't know if they do. Maybe they don't. <laughs> but that's such a great point because I think that also ties into like, privilege and equity too, you know, like that it's just like a luxury that I can be slowed down and, you know, take that home, take the extra work home. Mm -hmm. I feel like you have to pay it forward. I'm with you, Liz. Yeah. You know, I had amazing educators and and teachers and and who guided me. So I'm paying it forward and I don't get paid a cent. So. Right. And I, but I think it also brings up Sean, like that we, are like naturally we are caregivers and we're going to overextend ourselves and we don't have a really strong culture of like not burning ourselves out, you know? So like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I feel so conflicted about this. So I gotta, I gotta get this out of my brain before it explodes. So talking about NP diploma mills. So mm-hmm. there's a couple things that, that bother me about uh, this concept is that Abby's completely right. There are, there are, online programs out there that are just looking for money and profit and nothing else. I did my own research a long time ago before Abby and I even crossed paths and I I posted on Instagram and that if you do the math, there are options for nurses to become an advanced practice nurse, a licensed nurse practitioner, and only practice for a single year. So they can graduate from high school. They can become a diploma nurse, which is less than two years, and then they can move on and finish a 20-month online program and become a nurse practitioner as a 22, 23-year-old with little to no life experience and maybe a year of patient care experience, and they can be practicing as a nurse practitioner. If I think about it, I'll try and find a way to share the the post with you, but I, I did the math. And it disturbs me because nurse practitioners are by definition advanced practice nurses. So we are nurses that have advanced our practice. And that math doesn't equal advancing practice, not in my book. So I guess that's my problem with these diploma mills. And you're right, Liz, there's absolutely no way to know who or what is guilty or not. And that's, that falls on the student's responsibility. The first thing you have to find out is if they're credentialed, you know, because there are schools out there that are not credentialed. And then 
five years down the, lo- the road when you're up to renew your license or certification and find out that they weren't credentialed. I know students who have lost their license and lost their certification because they went to a school that wasn't credited and it wasn't their fault. They just didn't check. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a horrible game. And it, it came out of a, it was born out of necessity because like Abby, my, my, my nursing education was a diploma program out of convenience. I worked a full-time job and it was what I could pay for at the time. So it was my bachelor's degree. And so was my master's degree because it was all I could afford and all I could do at the time in my life. And, and that's the, the beauty of nursing education, but it's also the weakness of our, 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 our entire profession is that it weakens our profession because we have absolutely no standardization Mm -hmm. because there are seven different ways to enter the profession as an associate, as a diploma, as a bachelor's. And there's three or four different ways to become an advanced practice provider or a nurse practitioner. So if, you know, for the physicians that are in this this call, if you think you're confused, you should talk to some of our coworkers Mm -hmm. because we don't even get it sometimes. And the diploma mills just take advantage of the, of the, uh, the innocence of these students and the, the, their, not by their, their fault, but their ignorance for not knowing what they're supposed to be looking for. And the pandemic sure doesn't help these days. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. I totally agree. I mean, there needs to be like a standardization for requirements. I mean, for you to even apply to these programs. I mean, a minimum work requirement, GRE, et cetera. And and there just isn't. And I think that's the biggest problem. And it doesn't help us. It doesn't help, you know, I mean, I'm an NP student, obviously I'm not an NP, but it doesn't help the profession of nursing in general. So, okay. I want, we're still on page one, you guys. So I want to, I don't want to like rush, but I, I, I want to keep going. <laughs> okay. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of NP research showing Patients have similar outcomes as doctors. They have higher patient satisfaction, fewer unnecessary hospital readmissions, unnecessary emergencies. All of this stuff is is better. Okay. I have a lot of feelings about this research because, first of all, if you really look, if you're not just reading it, if you're really looking at the data, who's supplying it, it, it's mostly the AANP who, who funded this research. There's not a lot of data that's independent that I could find. And I think that that's worth mentioning. So let's talk about it. Go ahead. Are you saying it's biased? Hmm? No, I would never (laughs) say that. (laughs) You guys talk about, I want to ask the physicians if they, if they have heard of this. I don't know, like, is this, is this schooling or, or is this separate? I'm curious because they definitely talk about it in NP school, as you can imagine. They love it. (laughs) I'm sure they do. I can recall a handful of years ago seeing some of the literature about this. I think particularly some primary care outcomes. I can't remember if it was diabetes, hypertension management, something like that. And, you know, I don't know the studies well enough to to make a comment about them as particularly the the funding piece is is, uh, an important note, I think. But to, to what extent is hard to say. Maybe it biases it somewhat. What I will say, though, is this is something that's true, whether you're an NP, physician, PA, whoever, there is something to be said about 
following guideline-based medical practice. And maybe if you don't have as much experience, or maybe if you don't have as much confidence in your management style, you actually might be more likely to adhere to guideline-directed medical therapy. And I think there's an advantage to that because some of us, the farther along we get, we want to become like artisans uh, in the way that we do things. And, you know, we think we're super smart and, you know, a lot of the times you, you know, on a, on a population level, you shouldn't be an artisan. You know, there are certain people you're like this, this intervention does not apply to this particular patient. But in general, you know, there are things that are just best practices because the evidence is there for them. So that is my belief about why that difference may, may, may exist. But I certainly I can't prove that. Tara, what do you think? I mean, I guess, honestly, without having seen the paper and knowing like what was being used as a measure of outcomes, it's hard for me to weigh in on exactly what that means. I would say similarly, you know, as a resident, we do rely heavily. We have clinically standardized, we call them pathways at our hospital, um, which are evidence-based pathways and guidelines to treat very common diagnoses in pediatric patients. And everyone refers to them, whether you're a resident, whether you're a nurse practitioner, whether you're a PA for all of these diagnoses. And so I would agree with Matt in that. I think that especially as an intern, my bias was to rely on these more, much more heavily, whether that's good or bad is unclear. And, you know, as you see more patients and have more experience, you learn the nuances of when things do and don't truly apply to the patient in front of you. And again, whether that's good or bad, I don't know, but I, I don't know that I can necessarily speak to the, the specifics of what that evidence is without reading the papers myself. It would be difficult to do. I tried. I tried to do it. <laughs> Honestly, there's so much. There's so much of it. And a, a, another question, too, real quick, is, you know, if there's there's all of this coming from one source, right? So obviously, that's kind of biased. So I was trying to find stuff outside of that, and that was difficult to do. So the question is, as a doctor, would you pick this type of research? Would that be a topic that you would even pick? I mean, I personally am open to participating in any research, especially QI work, I think is really interesting, but I don't know, like, I don't, I've never personally been approached about this topic in particular. I'm sure at my institution, if a nurse practitioner was interested in pursuing it and approached an MD, I can't imagine anyone turning it down. And that's the nature of being at an academic institution where people are interested in research. I can't say that that's true of other MDs that aren't at an academic institution. But yeah, I could definitely see myself or other people wanting to pursue research in that. It's, it's an interesting topic for sure. Offer another un unpopular opinion here. Go for it. That's why you're here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the one with the angst. <laughs> so I think that Matt hit the nail on the head that these studies that you're talking about, Abby, are all about protocolized practice that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose so many followers for this. <laughs> um, you can teach a monkey how to follow a protocol. You can teach a monkey how to follow a guideline. It's really not hard. All you got to do is tell them what not to do. And to mm -hmm. follow A, B, C, D, E. I'm going to respond. What, is that, what does that even mean? <laughs> <laughs> so the decision tree is there for a reason because the evidence supports it. Now, the critical thinking is where it is developed from experience. As Tara pointed out, you start off by you're given a graph and a guideline, and this is what we want you to do. But as you gain experience and see more patients and realize that no two patients follow that, pathway, there's always a little bit of veering to the left or right that comes with experience and 
you know, guidance from others who have already done it. But in the beginning, in the first two to five years as a nurse practitioner, you are nothing but protocolized practice because you know nothing. You need someone to teach you. You need someone to hold your hand. Liz's entire business is probably based on that fear that we don't know what we're doing. And these studies that you're, you're, you're talking about, first of all, are biased because it's out of one particular area and from one company that wants you to hear the message they have to say. Mm-hmm. But also, and I've the little bit you and me both, Abby, I looked at and was like, yeah, okay, I'm not going to read all that, is that a lot of it is based in primary care. There's very few studies that talk about hospitalist care, inpatient care. It's, and maybe I should rephrase that. It's more outpatient-based care than inpatient-based care. And I can't speak to that because I have zero out, outpatient experience in any way. But I have a problem with the, I am in agreement that, that when it comes to base care, someone comes in with your standard CHF, they're, they're, this is the first time they're being seen for someone who has potential heart failure or something like that, that the evidence tells you these are the things you're supposed to do when we're nurse practitioner students. Okay, you're going to do an ACE versus an R because of this and not this, and you're going to do a beta blocker because of this and not this, and you're going to use a diuretic because of this and not this. That is evidence-based medicine. That's a protocol. That's a guideline. That's easy to do. What happens when the patient doesn't respond to the guideline? That's where the that's where the practice of medicine comes in. Mm-hmm. So, I just want to say one thing, and then Liz, I think that was a great point that you made about inpatient versus outpatient. Also, because outpatient is much more difficult; the outcomes take longer, right? If you're mismanaging somebody outpatient, it might take years for that to show up. So yeah, the the data surrounding that might be skewed also versus somebody inpatient. And maybe that's why we don't have those papers. I don't know. Who knows? I'm just saying. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, Liz. <laughs> well, well, two things I want to say. So in terms of protocols, I think uh, like Matt was saying, I think the studies, if I remember back like five years <laughs> reading some of the some of the studies were about hypertension and diabetes. And, and looking at the quality, like the numbers. And I guess what I was going to say, Sean, about the protocols is that the product, so, so the protocol, for example, for diabetes and, and hypertension and outpatient is like a number, you know what I mean? And so like, there are protocols of the JNCA guidelines or something like that. But in terms of the actual, like achieving those outcomes, like achieving like the numbers, there's finesse, right? Because you are talking about motivational interviewing, you're talking about patient care, like that kind of thing. But I mean, I also agree with you to to a certain extent too. But I think that one of the things that this brings up for me at least is that when we're talking about quality, there's so many different areas because if we're talking about QI, if we're talking about A1Cs of less than nine or, you know, blood pressures under control, like that kind of stuff. I don't know. There's just, there's so many other factors involved. Like there's the patient experience. There's, I work in a fairly qualified health center and we can't, it's just like, there are many factors here, right? And it doesn't necessarily come down to the quality of the care. I mean, maybe there's an argument there, but it's just there, there's medical errors. There are, you know, there are just so many factors we can't control for in a study to prove, quote unquote, prove safety. It's just really challenging. I would also go ahead and say that I don't necessarily, I think that the 
those studies are definitely biased and skewed. I agree with everybody on that. But I do agree, however, coming maybe from the outpatient side of things, that the presence of nurse practitioners does create greater access. And then that does benefit patients and that does benefit our populations. And I mean, I'm a nurse practitioner that works in a school setting and I regularly do physicals and asthma follow-ups that children regularly would not be brought to their Mm -hmm. physician for. So we're able to go ahead and decrease hospital admissions and ER visits and increase X, I mean, increase X scores. And we track all that data regularly with our patients and see the positive impact of providing that increased access. So I don't necessarily believe that it's the nurse practitioner or that there's any superiority between that. I just think that sometimes it's about creating an access point for patients. Definitely. Here's a here's a here's something that you know flip flip it's on its head is that earlier conversation we were talking about why we're comparing physicians to nurse practitioners, residents and things like that. But then here the American Association of Nurse Practitioners is doing just that by comparing us to physicians. Mm-hmm. So we're inviting this kind of conflict, aren't we? That's a great point. Yeah, and I think that it feels very agenda based. I mean, speaking with the with the if it's an organization that is conducting a study and is using that inf- I mean, again, I don't know all the details, but the like is is it being used? I feel like when I have heard about it, it's being used in the real world as like evidence that we should have full practice authority. Like I think yes. that comes in and it's like <sighs> I think sigh is all I have to offer. <laughs> Yeah. We'll, we'll get more into that. It, yeah. We have more about that really quick. I have a couple of fun. Let's, we've been talking real serious. I have a couple of fun things real quick. I'm just going to ask for your response. I'm going to say these words to you guys and collectively, if you want, whatever you want, just say what it makes you feel. Okay. Hold on. The brain of a doctor, but the heart of a nurse. Stop, please. <laughs> <laughs> What does that that even mean? Please just stop. (laughs) No one knows. (laughs) I've never, I I looked, I swear to God, I I spent a lot of time looking for this stuff. I looked for people who were saying this phrase. I couldn't find anybody who was really touting that they have the heart of a nurse and the brain of a doctor as a nurse practitioner. I did find a lot of merchandise. So that (laughs) begs the question, is there... (laughs) buying it probably yeah i don't know but that is cringe that's bad it's so offensive yeah it's someone's mom buying it it's for yeah someone's just deciding to draw the line in the sand right there i mean (laughs) how how does anybody find that inviting or motivational in any way yeah i tell you and it's not Mm -hmm. even clever Mm -hmm. i don't like it okay (laughs) okay how about mid-level provider (laughs) so much pain so if you're yeah yeah I don't know I'm curious if the I mean I I spoke about this with a physician who said that on her Instagram page just like sent her a DM being like oh like just so you know like a lot of people have a problem with that term um so Matt I so appreciated you saying APP because that's such a great yeah way to say it but it's just kind of like it feels very derogatory it just feels very like well not so good (laughs) how does a patient feel about that? Yeah. So, yeah. Like so I've talked about this a lot. 
<laughs> and I think it came out of a of a it was born out of a piece of convenience. So when you refer to your colleagues who are both nurse practitioners and physician assistants, that's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying the NPPA or the PAENP or the physician assistant and or nurse practitioner, somebody tried to come up with a catch-all phrase. So they came up with mid-level because we're in between the doctor and the nurse. And it was just, I think it was, it was just something out of convenience. But as I believe Abby commented on one of the posts that I saw recently, and I've always talked about is, is that if I'm the mid-level, what's the nurse? What's the bedside yeah. nurse? So are they the lower level? Yeah. And does that make the physician the upper level? <laughs> it's and weird. As, I mean, how derogatory is that? So I'm, mm-hmm. um, you know, up until one of the first years that I was a nurse practitioner in the company that I'm with, we did use the term mid-level. And it was a push by a lot of people from the system level. But like Matt, nobody uses mid-level now. It's advanced practice provider. Now it's a joke. We've all become an app. Mm-hmm. APP. We're all apps. <laughs> it's funny, but I'm okay with that because it's not derogatory. It's fun. It's funny. I mean, come on. This day and age in social media, I've become an app. I'm okay <laughs> with that. Much better than mid-level. So, Erica, what do you do? You hear this word? Do you, do people use it where you work? Oh yeah. It's like a behind closed doors thing. Mm -hmm. And I think anytime someone's frustrated, they like to throw it out and they do mean it in a derogatory way in that moment. It's probably some sort of like misdirected anger and they're just looking for someone to blame. But I think that's where it's completely fair for anyone to be offended by the word, because usually the people who are using it, I mean, they've been around long enough to know that people don't like to be called that. And so they're using it with some intent that mm-hmm. is not kind. Tara, do you have any feelings about nurses, advanced practice nurses who are in training, calling themselves intern, resident, going to a fellowship? Do those words, does that bother you? Does it feel like it belongs to doctors? No, I don't think, well, one, I don't think I've ever heard an APP refer to themselves as an intern. I don't think anyone wants that term, but I, I have no issue with the term fellowship being used or intern being used or resident being used. I think all of those terms are associated with postgraduate training. And I think all of us are going through postgraduate training in some capacity. It's unfortunate that residents' postgraduate training oftentimes is viewed as still school when it truly is our job. Um, It's my career right now. I'm getting a salary for it. And unfortunately, that salary is not what I would consider adequate. But I, I don't have an issue with any of those words being used for anyone else. I don't think the medical profession or MDs own them in any way. You guys are nice. Wow. No, I tried to pick yeah. nice people in this whole thing because I didn't want it to become like a big argument or something. So I picked everybody can have differing views. That's fine. But I didn't want it to turn into like someone murdering anyone. So for the <laughs> physicians here, do you know of work with colleagues, fellows that don't have your views that do have the negative confrontational view of APPs because I'm we're curious 
<laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I think Matt used the the bell curve term. There's going to be people that fall on either side of any issue and those people are everywhere. And so, of course, there's I have co-residents and fellows and attendings that I've worked with that don't necessarily share the same view as I do. And where that's born from, I don't necessarily always know. I think there's some expected frustration when you're in training as a resident, especially, and um, I'm sure to some degrees a fellow, that can be misdirected. And I assume that that's where it comes from whenever I hear it. Sorry, Abby, I'm taking over. So No, please. Do, do my you feel, go. <laughs> speaking to the physicians, do you feel it is generational? Do you feel that in my experience, and this is my biased opinion, because I once again work in an ICU, that a lot of the negative attitudes toward APPs seems to be in the older generation physicians, the old school docs who either have never heard of, seen of, or know what an APP is, or they don't want to maybe accept us as, as part of the team in a different role. That a nurse should be a nurse and stay a nurse at the bedside or, you know, doing nurse things and not doing advanced practice things. So, I mean, I've, I've, I've run the gamut. So I'm just, I'm curious. My personal experience is I've had one older physician very outwardly say negative things regarding APPs. But besides that, actually, I would say the majority of negative opinions that I hear is from other residents. So people my age or in my level of training. And whether that's just purely exposure related because the people I'm spending the most time with are other residents versus a generational difference is a little bit unclear to me. Yeah, it's hard for me to say. I I think, you know, we all have negative experiences in the hospital. I think sometimes people have particular negative experiences with one person and that can maybe color their opinion in a certain way. And I don't know if that plays into it at all either. It's, yeah, hard to say. I think it depends on the setting too, coming from the family med side where like a lot of my med school stuff was in the outpatient setting, just because that's what I was attracted to. That's where I do see like the older docs just because they were the ones who were teaching me things. And even then, I don't know if it was particularly like anti-nurse practitioner. It was almost like, it was much more like anti-urgent care in general. And sometimes that stuff would slip in. But a lot of that was like against just fractured primary care because people are going to the urgent care now with all of the acute complaints and then they only see you for their chronic stuff. And so even then, I don't know if it was really like the old people, like the old dogs hating on NPs and PAs. I definitely, maybe just because I'm in the hospital all the time, I just felt it more. I don't really feel it at my hospital because like I said before, I, I think my hospital just in general has a really healthy culture where people in general are are very respectful of one another and nice, but I do rotate at other institutions and they are, you know, it's like the one I'm thinking of as a for-profit hospital where the residents are much more like workhorses. And so I don't want to excuse bad behavior, but I think they're definitely much more like run down and quick to snap anything that's going wrong throughout the day. And they'll just blame whoever is making their day harder. So I definitely heard much more of that in that setting. I guess what I would clarify for my own personal experience is I think there amongst physicians in general and amongst residents is a differing in opinions and what 
falls under each individual person on the team's role. I know we're focusing on nurse practitioners in particular in this episode, but even the difference in opinions of, for example, if I'm in a patient room and I have a baby who poops, I will happily change a diaper. I don't view that as anyone in particular's role. I'm the one that happens to be in the room when it happens. I will change the diaper. But I have co-residents who are like, no, that's not my job. That's the nurse's job. So there's difference in opinions regardless of what, who you're looking at on the team. And I don't think that it's in particular directed towards nurse practitioners. I think it's unfortunate that people feel that way because it is a team and everyone has experience and a background that they can offer. And everyone has, yeah, everyone has experiences to share and offer that enrich the patient's experience in the hospital. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's like you said, it's not specific between MDs and NPs. I mean, that even happens between like a PCA and an RN. You know, some RNs are too good to, you know, I'm not going to change that patient. I'm not going to, you know, and then some are like elbow deep, you know, in a chuck, you know, so it just depends on the person, I'm sure. Okay, we have one one more term. What about DNPs calling themselves doctor? Matt? <laughs> I think there's there's two to preface this. I don't have a lot of attachment to the term. I actually don't go by doctor. But that being said, I think there's two there's two aspects to it. On the one hand, it's reasonable for somebody who earned a doctorate degree to want to be called doctor. I understand that. There, that makes perfect sense. But from a societal standpoint, I think it's important to clarify the training that you have because people's exp- the societal, the patient expectations of what that means are going to be different. So I think it's it's it would be important to clarify the the background uh, and that. And I, I think that's that's what I think is most important about about that difference. I'm, I'm not averse to it being used, but I think you would have to come with some sort of clarity about what that means in this instance. If you went to school and you did the dissertation, you did the work to earn the doctorate. I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want to call yourself, but it, it's important the patient understands what your background is and, and things like that, I think. Anybody else on that one? I mean, I guess it's it's similar to like the idea of, I, I think of like the whole MDDO debate, like how much does that actually matter in the care that you provide in terms of, yeah, there's a difference in training. I I obviously didn't go to DO school, so I don't know the exact differences, but I I know that my DO colleagues had a lot of specific training that I didn't go through. And that's a difference in training, but how much that actually matters to the patient in terms of clarifying, I don't know. How much do patients understand about the difference? I don't know. How much do they care about the difference? I don't know. So I personally don't care about the term. I agree that maybe to some degree, it would matter to patients to be able to clarify and differentiate between the two. But I I think the common patient might, you know, the lay person, if you want to say that term, might not know the difference anyway, even if you used more letters or whatever other term. So I, yeah, to me, I don't really know that it would make a big difference. I think the issue that I have, like, I just, so like my patients call me doctor all the time and I just like, I'm like Liz, it's still just Liz, whatever. So there's that thing in and of itself, but like, and I always correct them, but I think like one of the things is that I just, I don't love how it seeps into this conversation about equating doctor like dnp with doctor like i feel like that's where i see it most in conversations at least online of like i don't know i just don't like that flavor of it where it's kind of like used for like as justification of like a dnp is equivalent to md and it's just it's very different training mm-hmm. but in practical sense like the day-to-day 
I still correct patients, but they don't seem to care. <laughs> they don't seem to mind, you know, I'm still a nurse practitioner. They're like, okay, Dr. Oda. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Isn't that the point though? Is that, you know, it all depends on in the context. So as long as you're not confusing a patient or affecting patient care, agree with everybody else you can call yourself a doctor or wherever you want but if it if you have a risk of confusing your patient with them thinking you're a physician or a medical mm-hmm. doctor then you should clarify or you should avoid it at all costs if mm-hmm. in when i get my doctorate and i'm teaching in a classroom maybe i'll use the term but inside the hospital i will never use the term because i i I am at risk of confusing someone that has to do with patient care. And that's unacceptable in my world. So, cause I'm not a physician. I'm not a medical doctor. I have a doctorate. Mm-hmm. I am not a doctor. So. I agree. I work with a very population that has maybe a little bit lower health literacy. And so I call myself nurse Leah and the LPN that I works with calls herself nurse Amanda and we are nurses. And we are a nurse-run clinic. And like the other day, I had a parent who said, oh, well, you know, Nurse Leah, you're a doctor. <laughs> no, but, but I'm able to go ahead and refill your child's albuterol. So, <laughs> Okay, so this, this is getting a little out of control on social media, this topic. Like, it is wildfire. I mean, if you look in the right places, it's... I mean, it can be, I don't know if some of, some of you might've seen some of my posts about it. Some of these posts from both sides are violent. I mean, really, they're really combative. I mean, how much do you guys know of like the Reddit residency, the, I think it's what, Medi Twitter or something, or the Stop Scope Creep is sponsored by the AMA. What do you guys think about this and how much experience do you have with it? I know about the PPP people. Yeah. (laughs) And I was on Twitter for like 10 seconds, basically, like in quarantine, because there was a lot of like free education at that time. And I was like locked down uh, here in Michigan. And so that was actually a good like educational resource. But then you kind of stumble on all of this other stuff. And then it's just very depressing. So then I actually deleted Twitter kind of because of that. Um, but I did see like the stop, stop scope creep hashtag and I saw the PPP people. I don't know. I, and I know that California, like that was kind of like the hot topic at the time, but it was very hostile. Abby, I remember seeing you, you're, you're sharing in the stories and I kind of had like a little bit of like a trauma response. So I had to like excuse myself for a lot of it, but I'm not familiar with PPP if, if you want to, if anyone wants to comment on I think it's Physicians for Patient Protection, and it's not, I think it's just like the way they go about it is probably all wrong because a lot of it. as well? Um, probably, probably. They're, yeah, they're yeah, everywhere. On, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I found mm-hmm. them on Twitter personally, so that's what I knew it from, but you know, you people on, on both sides, it was very hostile because it's just one of those things where, you know, when something's politicized, it's all really loud and really angry and really mean people who are super polarized, who, of course, get all of like the shares and retweets and stuff. But it was just they would share like 
you know, one research article and just rip it to shreds, which is of course pretty easy. Cause like we said, like the research is very biased and, you know, if you're only measuring like mortality as an outcome measure, that's not exactly indicative of like quality of care in any way. So from that standpoint, like I understood some of the stuff and I understand like politics, it kind of has to be like that because you have to get the public on board in some way, but the public's not getting involved in PPP on Twitter. It's only medical people. So you're just attacking people that are on your own team. You're not changing anything in a positive way. So it just seemed like a fruitless endeavor from my point of view. Of course, I am young and ignorant to a lot of things. So maybe I don't know the best way to fix any of that, but that just seemed not productive. The the PPP people, from what I looked up, they're kind of like the reaction to the AANP. Mm-hmm. The AANP does so much lobbying. They have a lot of money. They really push very hard. So I think it seemed like to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seemed like to me a response to that. And they are a lobbying group and they take money and they push hard back and they create campaigns, like you said, that to take posters, flyers, put them in clinics to say, ask for a doctor. They provided routes for residents to provide patients with ways to take a case to the hospital, to have grievances against nurse practitioners, to get them out of the hospital. They have a campaign for attendings to say to the attending, do not train, do not teach. When you're doing teaching moments, do not include the NPs in these teaching moments because they're not one of us. They should be excluded. That's that's part of their whole game. <laughs> Are they also the group, and I don't know if you know this, Sean, the, the group that screenshots things in, in Facebook groups? Yes. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of yeah, those. I mean, I'm like, I'm just full disclosure. So I'm on Instagram. I'm on social media. I'm kind of afraid. I'm kind of like nervous about being on social media because of the bullying because of this very topic. And it's, it's so frustrating and it's so toxic because it's so distracting from the ultimate goals of patient care. You know, like, why are we wasting our time on this, this whole, whole frat, like, I know it's complicated. I know it's not easy, but it just, it's so frustrating to see that it's, that it's taking away from the larger systemic issues and it's taking away from patients. Like why would you spend that much of your effort and time putting up, like doing all of that stuff versus what could you do for patients with that time and effort and energy and passion, you know? I mean, that's a great question. Why, why would they, Sean, what do you think? You know, on the one hand, you want to just ignore it because it really doesn't play that much big, that big of a part in real life and real patient care, but it can be damaging too. You know, so you have, you got to pick your battles and you got to choose wisely on where, where you want to stand. The negative Nancy's and the burnt out harpies that are out there to do nothing but try and take you down a notch. It's, it's, it's once again, displaced anger and jealousy, you know, because if there truly were physicians out there that were worried about patient safety, then we would have an engaging conversation on how you and I can fix that. Not, not, a, not a matter of who's better, who's smarter, and who's more prepared. It's how can you and I fix that? I wonder, though, in terms like, again, I don't have all the data, but like with the PVP and the lobbying and the money, I think that's the thing that concerns me about it is because like money is power. 
you know, and like how, how much is, how much is that affecting reality? It feels like it's not. And like, I, I'm totally with you on that, but like, if there's that much action behind it, like that affects laws that affects, you know, like, what do you, I, I don't know what your perspective on that is. Like, is there any traction? Yeah, there is. Because just to Abby's point, think about all the research that the AANP has provided to prove that nurse practitioners provide the same quality care as physicians. Yeah, there is money. There is power in the money. And it is nothing but a political agenda, unfortunately. It's just not something, it's not a camp I, I invest in, sadly. I probably should, but I don't. So I'm stubborn. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited. This was so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, This is part one. Join us next week for part two. Thank you to Erica, Tara, Matt, Leah, Sean, Liz. Um, I couldn't have done this without you guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Please, please, please like, subscribe, share the podcast. This is brand new and I really appreciate everybody who has been so far. Um, We really need the love right now. Um, And if you want to send us your ideas or topics or suggestions or critiques. I got one of those so far and actually it was much appreciated and I will read it at a different time. Um, so send those to rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow the nocturnal nurse, which is me on Instagram. And you can also follow RNMD podcast, um, on Instagram. Okay. We'll see you next week for part two. All right. Bye. Bye.